uh, Harvard is raising funds from in rupee funds with tax deduction, which is allowed under the new NEP. And, and so, where the India is funding Harvard, and Harvard has a footprint here. They are doing a lot of research in India, a lot of database gathering in India, a lot of classification. All of that stuff is going on in India. So, Harvard is infiltrated in a very big way and is pretty serious. And it's not only Harvard; there are others also, and they have their branches in Ashoka and Kriya University and uh, all these Godrej Labs and uh, TIS and. Azim Premji's foundation involved. So there is a ecosystem that they are head of, head of a whole ecosystem. Th that is worrisome. I have asked a lot of Marxist historian even, is there any caste war in India? See, you can't have 1500 years of oppression without somebody, you know, coming out and fighting it out. And it's, it's absurd actually that one group of people were oppressed for. In Europe, you see every 50 years, 40 years, there were a lot of these revolts. And, uh... Though the West has been manufacturing atrocity literature, which you pointed out in your book, the fact is the level of atrocities against so-called Dalits has been far lower than before. In fact, they see that for the first time, they are actually getting a ruler who is not coming from a privileged elite. And in many of the states, it is the case. So they are actually merging into the broader stream of dharma quietly without fanfare there is also like rajiv ji said there is there are other universities also competing for the space like mit mit has a whole economic research on, on india mit is not bringing technology to india they're bringing this kind of uh, work economics to india and over there now now gates comes from the side and starts funding kriya university to find out female labor participation rates are very low especially among upper caste women why is that? Because again, to show its patriarchy. Hello and welcome to this conversation on Rajiv Malhotra and Vijaya Vishwanathan's new book, Snakes in the Ganga. Actually, there are snakes everywhere, not just in the Ganga. We are sitting quite close to the Kaveri and I think there are some here as well. So, to set the conversation of uh, Rajiv, uh, and we will also be joined by Professor Vaidyanathan, formerly of Indian Institute of Management, Bangalore, who will join us shortly. So, for the first thing, the main thing I got out of this book was that it helped me connect the dots. I have been observing many things happening in India and I have even written about them. But I was like a frog in the well. I couldn't see outside and what is happening outside. This book connects the dot between wokeism or whatever was happening ideologically in US campuses and what is happening in our own JNU and other places. So, that was a real revelation for me. I said, look, I think I have been able to see this only like a horse sees the front of the road, just a little bit. So this was a very big thing, the, the ability to connect all the dots between what's happening globally and here. So Rajiv, if I ask you first thing, how exactly and why exactly did you completely overturn your earlier Breaking India thesis and this is a completely new approach? What is the difference? So actually, it's not just connecting the dots with uh, foreign universities and JNU, but also uh, Indian Supreme Court uh, is one of the dots and the Indian billionaires who are funding all this stuff. Yeah. So I think this uh, American, you know, critical race theory and also the theoretical framework, how it's turned into critical caste theory and then how critical caste theory plays into this whole uh, caste system here and, and has a life of its own. So this is a huge international thing that we have uncovered. Now, the difference between this and uh, Breaking India 1.0 is quite a lot. Uh, Breaking India 1.0 was focusing on the problems that are being created for the Indian underclass in the villages, poor people, not the elites in Delhi and Ashoka University and Bombay industrialists and all of that, but the poor people in the villages and the conduit was NGOs. So now the conduit is not simply NGOs, some of the NGOs are still there. And the target is not the poor people. The target are the elites, the sons and daughters of very rich people who go to places like Harvard and bring this ideology back, who play, go to private universities in India and bring it back. Policy makers in think tanks like Niti Aayog, industrialists themselves, Supreme Court. So I think what has now happened is that Harvard, given its status as sort of a very global Vishwaguru, we call it, uh, uh, that Indians have accepted as the Vishwaguru, uh, has a special place in the hearts and minds of the ruling class of India, the ruling elites. So, while a villager might not know what is Harvard, so it would probably not be the right place to target the villages, but it is the right place to target all the who's who of India who would love to be in the Harvard club. 
So once Harvard decides to start exporting this, they can get to the power structure of India for the first time. Right. Uh, the other thing I found was uh, that um, the lot of Indian elites earlier uh, were uh, not looking so much in terms of uh, what was happening outside, but now a substantially large number of people have actually gone there, got themselves educated, and then they have also set up businesses there. Whole of Silicon Valley is full of Indians and things. So now the attack is coming even on Silicon Valley, I believe, and the Indians are trying to be indoctrinated there. So what is exactly is the threat? Because it's not just Indians in India, but Indians abroad also are going to face some kind of attacks from the new ideologies being flowered in Harvard and elsewhere. Yes. So what has happened is that a part of this critical caste theory, which is derived from critical race theory, and this is a Harvard product, we've mentioned the people in Harvard who are doing it. Part of it is that the caste is like race and therefore American laws of racism, which are very tough, criminal laws, should be applied to caste abuse in the United States. This is the first time. So Cisco in Silicon Valley got a lawsuit that you have caste abuse and therefore racism and therefore all these American laws have to apply to you. And Cisco of course defended it, but the thing is going on. And all of Silicon Valley is very scared because they, it could happen to anybody. Since there are a lot of uh, upper caste people working in Silicon Valley, all it takes is somebody to raise this issue legally and then they have to defend themselves. And it's also not only a li litigation issue, it's also an issue before your pub the public opinion because to be called a racist is a very bad thing in the, in, the, in the eyes of anybody in the US. So what has happened is now Indians in Silicon Valley are on the defensive. This hadn't happened ever before. So this is a very clever way to break the back of the IT industry. And so the, the tech people in Silicon Valley have not had the ability to defend themselves because nobody has done this work. And one of the goals of this work is to educate our own Silicon Valley people on how to defend themselves, where the problem is coming from, whom to stop funding, and how to answer back when they are put on the defensive. And I've re we received so many emails from Indians working in Microsoft and Google and all these places wanting to know how do you how do you respond when somebody comes and says, you know, we're going to be having a workshop on uh, caste sensitivity. Yeah. So one of the things I found, Vijaya, is uh, that um, it's not just the elite and the students who are woke, but increasingly our judiciary is also talking the same language. I think I recently saw a video in which you quoted our next chief justice who will take over from November saying exactly the same things that the Harvard's caste theorists have been saying. What is the connection uh, and is it that we are going to get all our wisdom on caste from Harvard or are we going to get it from Professor Vaidyanathan who is in a thing on caste? But I'll first you Vijaya. Okay, uh, excellent question. It definitely seems like that we are getting all our gyan on caste from the West. Uh, Professor Vaidyanathan will probably be one of those people who are cancelled at Harvard because his voice will not be, you know, looked at. Now, uh, it's gone into the judiciary. In fact, a, a judge, a very senior judge in Karnataka said that if this has gone to the judiciary, if these woke ideas of critical race theory have gone into the judiciary, it means it has permeated the entire system. It has permit, perm, you know, permeated the government, business houses, and in fact, most things get to the judiciary at the very end. So, if it means that uh, the judiciary is saying these things, essentially, you know, the the canary in the coal mine is the entire, all systems, all institutions, all governmental uh, agencies are all you know, following suit. So that's what it essentially means. So Harvard in, indeed has that much power and control. And one of the things we try and show in this book is the scholarship behind all this, because most of the time we tend to ignore it and say somebody is saying something in Harvard, what's it for uh, in it for us. But the, in this book, we show you how it affects the average person on the street. We can't afford to ignore these uh, the, this kind of scholarship as some, you know, some small group at the fringe doing these things. So it, it goes to show how it affects the average Indian on the street. Right. So uh, critical caste theory has grown from fringe to mainstream in American academia, right? So while none of us is go going to defend any caste-based uh, violence or atrocity, obviously caste is not just about hierarchy and uh, atrocity. 
there is a certain element in it which actually the fact that over 2000 years we have tried to do something about it thinking there must something wrong with it and yet it has survived what is that vital element that actually keeps it uh, going still and is it uh, ever going to be addressed in a way where you make sure there is no injustice and yet keep the good parts of it what do you think professor vaidyanath actually i have written a yeah book also it's a major social capital people don't yeah. uh, seem to recognize that actually mm. it provides a huge amount of cushion in terms of relationship in terms of uh, conducting your affairs uh, business and lot of sampradayas methods of doing it another thing and it's not uh, something you know rigid or hierarchical this was 1881 the british did the first census where they created this fourfold categories mm. incidentally prior to that there is no evidence to suggest this hierarchy of you know uh, brahmin kshatriya another thing that was the creation of the british in 1881 first census prior to that there is nothing they quote some purusha uh, sukta where you know the god is supposed to told that the brahmins came from head and uh, shudras came from feet and but uh, that's not a very convincing thing because feet is actually worshiped in our context if you go to vaishnav temple they give you the yeah uh, creedam that's actually the feet of lord vishnu right. so that's not the after that there is uh, nothing and people talk about uh, caste oppression and caste i have asked lot of marxist historian even is there any caste war in india see you can't have 1500 years of oppression without somebody you know coming out and fighting it out and it's it's absurd actually that one group of people were oppressed for in europe you see every 50 year 40 year there were lot of this revolts and that is uh, yeah. one important thing to recognize we didn't have any major caste wars this is a very important point yeah. the po- the very very important point you made yeah. that we have no history of caste wars And, and they somehow uh, they somehow negotiated and figured it the, out. The uh, Marxist historian also agreed on that. Then uh, you know the other thing is Dipankar Gupta, one of the renowned sociologists in Delhi. He said this whole fixed notion of caste is wrong. Hmm. He says it's ossification. Yeah. He says uh, uh, if you go back to 16th century, many castes which are not uh, you know in the consideration or they were all very major caste in 17th century. Correct. it is so it was always a you know flux yeah, actually yeah. this rigid system came because of the british british they told that uh, and uh, in uh, 1891 census the census commissioner was asked where from you got this fourfold he openly told in britain we have this uh, senior civil servants officers clerks and peons <laughs> so this four category uh-huh. we thought we will superimpose in india that's all because they wanted to have in their own mirror image about and another thing which many people are not realizing british gave the enumerators the right to classify your caste which was never ever done in any census anywhere in the world it's not you know the enumerator can't decide your and they gave so whenever a fellow is slightly with a mustache and well built kshatriya oh, <laughs> and uh, if he is sitting in a big pillow and you know not counting the vaisha <laughs> so this is how they classify this whole classification itself is questionable <laughs> and till 1931 they continued it actually the the enumerators given the right is not a appropriate thing at all in the thing. and uh, see this is its own Uh, if you go back in history so many changes have come about people don't realize actually lot of people have made uh, changes in the caste system over a period of time most important is from within for which you have to be within not outside yeah. if you are within means what you should be perceived as a uh, sincere person very religious person you know saint tukaram or uh, uh, you know so many others in the history maharashtra as well as much later gandhi for instance mm. they could bring about uh, you know changes right. not those who are for instance gandhi was much more successful than uh, uh, raja ramon rai right? was outside mm. 
see this is the important thing in our system you have to be part of the system and when you uh, want to reform people accept it actually okay he is a uh, for instance when uh, the madurai famous uh, temple entry was made by vaidyanathaya was one of the very major devotees and of uh, minakshi so it couldn't be done by any outsider even though they took credit later and other thing so its system has gone through several rounds of reforms changes and uh, other thing not uh, from outside how mm. about you know the our social system is uh, such that it has uh, self correcting and uh, anything you impose on uh, for instance we have this uh, 1963 if i remember correctly dowry abolition act mm. everybody took procession and uh, mm. you know jj and other thing you tell me has it been abolished <laughs> because the society has got its own way of uh, dealing with it similarly we have very recent example of this public areas you cannot smoke in india very severe penalty and other thing mm. and you cannot uh, take chupan also in any public place in india as per law yeah but you check any wall you will find <laughs> any wall uh, actually in some places in uh, bombay and calcutta i have seen they have fixed uh, lord ram uh, ganesha and other thing so that people don't spit on that uh, wall so if i may add to this question uh, you know the critical caste theory people have brought it up minorities along with the oppressed this idea the marxist idea that there are oppressors and oppressed so the dalits are the oppressed the minorities are also the oppressed and the women are also the oppressed so now they have made this club of the oppressed or we the oppressed are going to overthrow the whole indian system or oh, dismantling hindutvad and dismantling india and all that what do you say or what do you is your view on that that now they've also brought in non dalits some of the minority people they brought in are actually rich people also so what do you say of that no more you know you know this this thing is okay for academic discussion but in practice lot of surveys for instance the pangar gupta as well as mn sinos they point out when you go to a person and uh, talk to him and then <laughs> ask him you know you belong to the a uh, backward caste or you belong to the, the he says no we have the rulers we come from chandravamsa suryavamsa another thing <laughs> in the last 40 50 years we have been dethroned we will again come back to so they don't uh, for certificate another thing is okay but they don't accept that they belong to backward or uh, weaker caste or anything this is very very no caste in india accept that they are uh, weaker caste another thing which is classified by the others so even the term backward caste is a kind of a insult to be called a backward caste ah only for the certification purposes certification. OBC. They, they obc obc classes not castes but uh, that because the constitution doesn't classify caste as obc see class. if you see uh, post independence sardar patel merged 543 samasthanams with india some of them willingly some of them unwillingly hyderabad was one of the classic case of unwillingness at any anyway, excluding the muslim samasthanams the kingdoms if you count this 540 you will be surprised all the 540 were ruled by the obcs see india is a only country where the erstwhile rulers are now enjoying reservation as a backward <laughs> no other place actually they were all rulers of some you know smaller kingdom or something like that bigger kingdom and, and some of them were scst also but uh, all of them were obcs yeah. this uh, nobody points out actually all were obc kings yeah. no the other thing i have also noticed if you see the current political uh, dispensation even whether bjp or non bjp government practically all of them are headed by what we would today classify as obcs mostly and the prime minister himself can broadly be classified in that group if you want to do that though we are doing him a disservice by calling him that because he has shown that he is <laughs> far above in terms of capability than many others but the fact is this is what it is and in the last years though the west has been manufacturing atrocity literature which you pointed out in your book the fact is the level of atrocities against so called dalits has been far lower than before in fact they see that for the first time they are actually getting a ruler 
who is not coming from a privileged elite and in many of the states it is the case so they are actually merging into the broader stream of dharma quietly without fanfare but this that's why what worries me about harvard is that now they are trying to disrupt what is a natural coming together of various groups in india by trying to say no no you are different you are different you, this is what the british did yeah so the oxford thing is now been taken over by harvard can you say that how successful do you think they will be they are trying to do that in us but will they succeed here because i i'm worried because i'll tell you what already big, the, these people are very well thought of they have the world economic forum every indian wants to go to and world economic forum is an adjunct to harvard uh, everybody wants to go to the kennedy school everybody wants to go to the harvard kennedy school and uh, and uh, the, the kids are going there uh, india is training its is officers there uh, the indian billionaires are funding it so you know the harvard is all over there is a harvard presence in mumbai there is a harvard in delhi uh, the harvard is raising funds from in rupee funds with tax deduction which is allowed under the new nep and, and so where the india is funding harvard and harvard has a footprint here they are doing a lot of research in india a lot of database gathering in india a lot of classification all of that stuff is going on in india so harvard is infiltrated in a very big way and is pretty serious and it's not only harvard there are others also and they have their branches in ashoka and kriya university and uh, all these godrej labs and uh, tis and arjeem premji's foundation involved so there is a ecosystem that they are head of head of a whole ecosystem Th that is worrisome now another dimension is you want to talk about patriarchy and the gender issue yeah but before that okay. uh, the there is also like rajiv ji said there is there are other universities also competing for the space like mit mit has a whole economic research on, on india mit is not bringing technology to india they're bringing this kind of uh, work economics to india and over there now now gates comes from the side and starts funding kriya university to find out female labor participation rates are very low especially among upper caste women why is that because again to show its patriarchy now why is maybe the woman has a choice uh, and we should applaud that if they decide not to go to work and and decide to put raising children and the being for the family as priority i'm not saying one way or the other but it can also be just that the hindu woman is empowered to make such a choice so on one side gates funds this kind of research at kriya next the other side gates goes to ashoka and funds behavioral on a population level how do you change behavior of masses what can we do to change behavior so the end goal for gates is to show that there is patriarchy and we how can we use social media and other techniques to change behavior of of hindu women and this is sort of dangerous because during the covid they also tried to change the behavior of the average indian person to not believe in karma and and uh, you know not fate but you know to accept whatever each one's lot is in life and ayurvedic medicine was banned ayurvedic medicine was you know was was banned was hushed in fact people i was close to in the ayurveda who who actually did not use any ppe to treat 5 600 uh, you know patients essentially said they are not allowed to even say out loud that they are treating covid patients lest their licenses would be removed they won't be allowed to practice so this sort of who is actually controlling this and who is behind who china is behind who gates foundation funds who so these are all big global elites that are controlling a country and um, yeah so that's what i wanted to add yeah, to so now that you brought up china uh, i thought i'll will ask you two different questions the first one is why is it that we find our rich actually trying to ingratiate themselves with uh, the ivy league institutions by making massive donations which they wouldn't do here and also why is it that china has done the same thing giving them lots of money but the outcomes are quite different here we find that they are selling us uh snake oil on sociology and uh, caste and things there china is telling them what they should be saying about china right. how is this different how did china manage this differently compared to us are we the only jokers in town there so you know in this book we don't want to insult or insinuate our billionaires in fact we say that they have a right to spend the money the way they, way they want right. and if they want to be woke they have a right there is not no legal violation if you can have any ideology you want we are a free country uh, we just point out that there is a certain effect 
that is produced which is adverse to India and their name, family name and their money is being used. Now, if they want to do it and they say, well, that's what we believe, it's certainly their right. Now, what are they getting for it? We don't know, but, but they're certainly perceived, it's a lot of prestige. They are perceived as part of the global elite. Uh, you know, the top tier of the whole world. Uh, they they are sitting on committees and boards in some of these places. Uh, their kids and family can get into, uh, you know, admissions and they get all the limelight. They become like another level of elite now. So, that's some permutation of this. Maybe they're getting business deals out of it. We don't know exactly for, for and it may be different for different cases. As far as the uh, Chinese are concerned, the billionaires there who are giving money uh, on a, also on a big scale are aligned with national policy, aligned with the Communist Party of China. Some of them, uh, some, of, some of the people they brought in have, we have shown are, have links with the Communist Party of China. So, the Harvard has been infiltrated in a certain way. Ideologically, Chinese want STEM and they want their kids to go and learn technology and bring it back, some of it by stealing also, whatever it is, but they don't want human rights. They don't want Harvard talking about Tibet, about Uyghur Muslims, about the lack of freedom in Hong Kong. Those topics are taboo. So, when the Chinese are funding, it's not about humanities and they're not wanting Harvard to tell them about politics in China and social rights and all that. But in India, the billionaires are funding this. There seems to be no coordination with the government. There seems to be no sense of what's what, how, how is it related to the Indian grand narrative? They are not saying this is our Indian grand narrative and we are going to want to fund something which is aligned with it. Yeah, the Chinese are very clear. So, because China has clarity and a kind of a unity of purpose and strategic thinking, their, their results are very different from those of India. But uh, one subsequent question to that, actually if you remember, I mean, the Ivy League and universities are keen on foreign money. I think some years back, there was a case where I think some group affiliated to the Sangh, uh, Rajesh Swayam Sevak Sangh, wanted to do a chair on Hinduism and it was rejected by them. I mean, some smaller university. So, like, why is it that some people want to return your money and some people are eager to give it to you as long as you pat their backs? I mean, our, I mean what is the difference? Why is why are they returning money? So, in that case, I know that Dharma Civilization Foundation was very crude. They did not understand the system. Okay. See, I will tell one thing. Infinity Foundation uh, funded chairs, funded visiting professorships twice at Harvard successfully, got our own man in, got our own man in. And we funded the Harvard Indology Roundtable for many years in a row. So, we were able to crack how the system works, how to get your own people in, which those guys were not able to. But the reason we changed our mind is that we felt that it's a small drop in the ocean. The people we put in there are surrounded by such a large amount of people who are antagonistic that they can't really function. And unless we train a whole lot of people in India, Unless we have Indians who are willing to go out and be the ambassadors, there is no point in trying to change brainwash or trying to somehow buy out people who are in Harvard. China was more successful because the level of funding was very huge compared to what we could do. The level of funding was so huge they could take a whole center and put one person after another and bring those Harvard guys to China and, and treat them right. Also, China has a blacklist and a whitelist. Mm. The white list is those who are welcome because they are saying the right things. Mm. Uh, those Chinese, those Americans are welcome, uh, red carpet for them. And the black list is those who are not going to get in. And so, all, and everybody else in the kind of gray list on a case by case basis. India does not have anything like that. India does not manage. So, some of the people who are the nastiest people uh, anti-India are all the time coming and giving lectures and right here in India, they are insulting India and nothing is done ever. I am not promoting censorship. But I'm promoting some kind of vigilance. Be sure at least know what's going on. So, professor, uh, he mentioned business, but don't you think that the Indian bureaucracy is equally compromised in terms of see policies are made at the level of uh, government staff and politicians, right? But it's not just businessmen. Businessmen might give money to set up chairs, but the civil service. I'm told almost everybody has relatives studying there or seeking a job there or whatever. Don't you think that place is equally compromised? Yeah, yeah. 100 percent. I would say not, uh, <laughs> not any hesitation. Okay. You see, the <clears throat> dream of every senior civil servant who, you know, who is going to retire is to go and settle in UK or USA okay. uh, with a green card or without, a, you know, whatever is the thing. Plus, uh, as you rightly said, all their kids and all their uh, people are abroad only, not here. <clears throat> they have 
plus you know it's not a top secret many of them have got accumulated money in tax havens so that also is used for the children's education many of them send their children on pay payment sheet right. and it's not uh, it's not a very easy thing at least these days hmm. the payment sheets are phenomenally high 17. even within us many are not uh, able to reach them but these people uh, get that so they are very very clear and they are very much uh, what do you call obliged for the uh, the second thing is which is very common i i'll tell you i won't tell the name now it is slightly reduced even among our ministers and senior civil servant quite some time before i was in a room with a minister and the senior somebody told uh, this uh, bbc person has come you know the way they ran outside <laughs> it i was taken aback actually not for any of our times of india or hindustan time nobody will but now it is relatively less as far as the media is concerned but as far as the other thing is concerned what you are telling it is still there hmm. if somebody has come from you know uh, white background is white they very hardly wait outside in the lounge or in the room or others are sitting there like huh. maybe for an hour or so with petitions and but these people walking right hmm. so there is a sense of entitled you know entitlement from them and we also uh, what do you call accept it yeah uh, give rise to it so among bureaucrats i would definitely say good number of them are uh, what i won't use the word compromised or anything are fascinated by the uh, but i am given to understand a fleet recently maybe last couple of months or an year or two it's slightly reducing because the conditions in those white countries are not very good mm-hmm. they find a lot of garbage in the road and you know they are reminded about bangalore and uh, bombay only again and uh, <laughs> flooding you know all these yeah. things are so that attraction is slightly lower like there was a report telling iit student hardly nowadays you know 20 15 to 20% only are interested in going abroad most of them are uh, staying back compared to a situation where nearly 90% were so this is uh, something which uh, hopefully will right but uh, it's not very easy right it's not going to be very easy i would say uh, bureaucrats are enormous even today almost all of them are enamored by the thing and uh, another thing is also there including there was a report 30% of the house uh, residential area in london real estate is owned by indians not uh, indians who are uh, resident of uk even other indians actually mm-hmm. and uh, many of them i am given to understand are our uh, senior civil servants <laughs> so it's uh, something which uh, which is there i i call the call it as our umbilical cords are tied to the west right so tell me this harvard is been able to suborn the media in many ways right in india especially and even their own media takes a certain line no matter what you do right how do you think this is happening hmm? uh, i mean how is it that the media supposedly independent the minute suppose some media house here uh, seems to be openly supporting the government they immediately say oh they have lost their independence but nobody ever raises those kind of questions about media there if they can go on slandering us it doesn't make a difference
See, when you look at how much of somebody's career, if he's a Harvard alumni, is owed to his Harvard brand name. They'll tell you, you go to people who got, got out of uh, MBA or whatever, uh, they will say that large part of what you get out of it is the networking. Because right. for life, you are you are in that league and you can always pick up the phone anywhere in the world. You find Harvard alumni and they all stick together. It's like a caste. There's a Harvard caste system. Yeah. You could think of it like that. We're a Harvard caste system. And so that the number of Indians who are Harvard alumni is now in the tens of thousands. Ooh. Tens of thousands. Because, you know, you look at how many they've produced and how many places they are. And they've been doing this on a very big scale. Right now, the current population of uh, people at Harvard, whether they're students, postdocs, faculty, is in the hundreds in the, in the area of uh, liberal arts, these kind of humanities kind of fields. It's not like 10, 20 professors. It's a very large number. And you look at in any year, how many of them, I'm including how many of them have gone for a conference there. Uh, they'll have a uh, Mittal Center, we'll have a conference with so many people there. Uh, this uh, Mahindra Center, go on having talks by various people, etc., uh, etc. Et so they, they have spent their money and their brand name uh, and built a, a hierarchy of Indians, top level Indians, all the way down, down to some students. And these people are managing, you don't need the Goras anymore. The, the Indians are doing all the work, they are very loyal to now. Big difference between now, between the American uh, approach and the British approach. The British had only their white guys at the top and Indians were below a certain level. But the Americans have allowed uh, even the top guys, uh, Indians who are who are loyal to them, let's say. I can't say compromise because that's their ideology and they happen to believe in it. But people who are into Western universalism, Western uh, theories do not have any respect or sympathy for Indian ideas are doing very well there. So, Macaulay's vision is being realized in America. Yes. Huh? Yes. So, okay. And in India. And in India. Yeah. One additional point we were discussing on the caste issue. Many of the people I come across from US, they do not know the current situation at all. Yeah. You know, they are talking about, uh, you know, the elites are dominating in IITs. I, First of all, I asked them, do you know from 2008, yeah. there is a reservation yeah. system. 50% of IIT IAMs are reserved for various categories of people. From 2008, not today, yeah. 50% and in Tamil Nadu it is 69%. Mm. It's a separate thing. And uh, there are something like 23 IITs and IAMs today, not 3 or 4. Anyhow, Last 5-6 uh, years data, which I am putting it in my new edition of the book. Very interesting, <coughs> the OBCs, which are expected to have 27.5% because of the other group, 50 it is not expected to cross. Yeah. OBCs are actually occupying some 70% of the open category seats. Mm. See, out of 100 seats, 50 seats are supposed to be open category, where you know the upper caste or you may loosely call them. But all of them are occupied by OB In medical, if you take top 100 uh, ranks, hardly one or two you will find upper caste. So based on meritocracy, they are succeeding. That's right. And if they are succeeding based on… The point is, on, yeah. most important, that cannot be set off against the OBC reservation. Okay. So they have this. Plus, they also have that. So, this huge change has come about from 2008, I am talking about, roughly of the order of some 14 years now. Many of these researchers are not even aware of it. They go on talking about, uh, you know. So, you know, my, my uh, call to action to the viewers of this is, uh, to the Harvard people, I am appealing to uh, Professor Homi K. Baba of the Mahindra Center. And I'm appealing to uh, Professor Tarun Khanna, with all due respects, you are you, know, uh, you are having all these events. You've never invited Professor Vedyanathan, who has a counterposition, and he's not some demagoguery kind of guy. He's got data, he's done research, he's done decades of research. I defy anyone in Harvard who's done as much research on these matters in India as he has done. I've never seen you, your people quote him. 
reference him, invite him. He should be chairing these kind of uh, committees. He should be out there all the every year. You should have him there. So I would say that in order to live up to your reputation of free speech and liberalism and all that, next five ten years he should be a prominent speaker every single time, because they, look at how much he knows. And they have this is called cancel culture, which wow. means which means that. If you can't uh, uh, if take, you, can rebut them, you, you cannot. <laughs> yeah, if you if you are if you have the facts on your side and they can't put up with it because the ideology they want is different, then they will say that we ignore that he even exists. Ah, okay. Uh, they cancel your existence. That's but but one thing, uh, what I actually notice, so based on what he said and which I have also said often, what the Suraj Yengdes want is that say don't look at. Uh, uh, equality of opportunities. Look at equality of outcomes. Yes. Now you actually got it. You got uh, more than equality of outcomes. At least with one large category of non-upper castes. Right. Okay. Uh, maybe Dalits are still some way off, but uh, they still uh, they'll take some time. I think their uh, educational backwardness over a long period of the time has been so much that they have to take time to catch up. But they are sure to catch up because. We have gone actually woke in our constitution far ahead of uh, the storage young days of the world. Okay, if we are reserving forty nine percent, based not on pure merit, but for si for the sake of affirmative inclusion, what are these guys cribbing about? What do they want to do here? No, that's so, what I uh, yeah. want to know. So basically, this dismantling structures yeah. plays well into the guilt of the white people, the liberal white left, ultra left progressives. That you know, I am this Indian, and I am from a grievance background, and I am oppressed, and you know, and so I'll be your man there. I'll be the ambassador, bringing your ideas to these downtrodden billion people, and so they fund such a guy. And so these are useful idiots. I see them as useful idiots, and they are serving as sepoys, like in the British time they were sepoys. So there's a huge ecosystem of that. The problem is not that uh, Harvard is doing it, or that uh, they are able to get these middlemen. Because there's all motives there. The problem is that people in India in high places have accepted it. This is the problem. The national education policy promotes liberalism, liberal arts, but they do not have Vedic liberal arts. We do not have an Indian approach to social sciences. It's not Dharma Shastra, Artha Shastra. It's not based on what are the theories we can, what are the ideas we can learn from Mahabharat. It's not that. It's Harvard liberal arts. If you look at the liberal arts as coming to IITs, for example. They are they are usually uh, Western trained people, so we've opened the floodgates uh, to in the name of uh, liberalization. We've opened the floodgates to what I call Western universalism, the Western ideologies being brought in. So our receptivity is the problem, not that they are trying to sell this. One more point I want to mention: many things we have done so naturally, we don't even claim credit for it. I'll tell you an example: in Atlanta, when I was there, there was some Seminar or something about women and this. So I pointed out, look, when we got our constitution, women were given the voting rights without any single person talking about it. It was considered as natural, you know, that uh, that's all. And Switzerland got their rights is as late as sixty-eight uh, or sixty-nine only. So and you had suffragette movement, you had so much. We never had any issue or problem associated with that. They couldn't believe it. Actually, did it really happen like that? And because they were never told some of these uh, basic things, like whenever I say that we never had slavery as our uh, point of uh, you know discussion, long time, two thousand years, slavery was not there. Mohammedan Muslim Islam had slavery, obviously Christianity had slavery, all of them. But we never had a Idea of slavery at all? It's not a part of our culture or anything. Now, what I want to stress is many of these things are, uh, you know, completely blocked or not talked about. When they have told, when I told about women getting rights without nobody actually wanted to have a discussion even about it. It was felt it's a standard, you know, so operating procedure type of thing. So this is something which I feel is. Uh, Very important in the context of uh, you know dealing with some of these uh, cancel fellows. Yes. Yeah.
and uh, more than that i was just thinking all these guys you know your ajanta subramaniam suraj jengde and uh, all these people um, i mean he called them they are useful to that system for whatever <laughs> some uncomplimentary words which stalin used for uh, i think leftists in britain i think but the issue is this don't these guys realize that it's when their utility ends the uh, harvard will have no use for them you know at this point they may be playing the rich man's game and doing whatever damage they need to do here but at some point uh, will they actually be uh, people who are not required don't you think they will dump them when the when they don't need them i think the the scholarship the so the world of if you look at grievance studies for example uh, you know fat studies like i said fat studies is not about making a person healthy it's about showcasing you know obesity and being proud of obesity those sorts of it's an oppressed group so it's a, that, that victimhood yeah. Yeah. thing goes on now so all these grievance studies uh departments studies areas crop up every day there are newer and newer studies um in this whole umbrella under, under grievance studies now the way that scholarship works is that you have a hunch and uh, i have a hunch and we uh, we are sort of motivated to come up with some social theory we then we form a group of a, a group we start publishing you quote me i refer you then we have a journal and then the anyone who disagrees with with our viewpoint is not allowed and this is just pseudo science it has it's just it is essentially propaganda so they they form this kind of club and then the scholarship is then built upon that so whole area is built and conferences are held and so you've got a entire body of knowledge and all these people like ajanta subramaniam and all they quote each other they can't even come out i know many people who tell me that i'm a professor here and you know i can't come out because what will i do you will be a pariah you have actually also invested in this in this scholarship so as an academic how do you come out you can't pull out pull yourself out so you have to sort of propagate it once you're in it's like a treadmill you just have to keep running so so the entire i mean and you know and that's one of the reasons why he gets cancelled because he is not part of it and, and nobody wants you can easily cancel them so they have the other weapon too so they can cancel so they are also invested so number a they number one is that they are invested in this so 20 years of this sort of academia in scholarship they produce they can't get out they refer each other's work and so it's, it's a cool club and they think it's going to be there forever because they the lots to dismantle like the whole world you know so they come newer you know we have waves of indology so all these this is scholarship it has gone on for decades so they they just feel it's you know it'll continue no but i think what he's doing is important because there has to be a child who says the emperor has no clothes exactly you know <laughs> i mean at some point everybody will realize that they've all been had but uh, i can't see that them building uh, this superstructure on sand huh? but that's exactly what they build don't you think so yeah but see the superstructures on sand have been built in history Lot of superstructures. Ultimately, they dismantle. But look at all the billions or lot of the millions whose lives are destroyed in the process. I mean, you could argue that America could could never capture and keep Afghanistan. But look at all the destruction done. You could you could say that about Vietnam. So the fact that ultimately the ultimate victory is denied to the oppressor, to the people who, are, in my opinion, the true uh, oppressors, that doesn't uh, uh, change the fact that so many so much havoc and damage happens. so their dismantling is causing problems for india uh, in the end maybe they'll win maybe they'll not win but that's decades away they'll keep they have enough resources to keep at it for a while don't you think this is the opposite of dharma dharma is to uphold and sustain whereas this seems to be about how to destroy something or the other in the assumption that something better might come out i mean isn't this th- theory uh actually leading to say look i am going to destroy this because i don't agree with this but i don't know what's going to come after that i mean you don't know after you let's say you destroyed whatever wokeism is destroyed whatever is there of caste or uh, dharma or uh, civilization or whatever what do you think will come out of it i mean can you see something useful coming out of it because they don't have a vision you know Uh, not, uh, at least the old marxism had some vision they are not uh, they are not interested in having a alternative or something this is about just venting against the whole world is it see i have a hypothesis declining powers are much more dangerous than rising powers mm. so you can't uh, you can't serve you can't better or you can you see i am a drowning man i would rather pull pull you along with me that's all uh, i it's not uh, 
for me to give you any and you seem to be doing well you are smiling you are happy and you are also growing so this is uh, they see they don't they have reached a situation where i don't think they are going to want to have any alternative for instance one example i'll give so much was written by new york times washington post economist about this iraq having this uh, chemical weapons everybody was against it and everybody finally what they couldn't find even one bottle of hydrochloric acid there <laughs> you, this is a fact actually and there is no discussion after that and iraq is in such a messy situation today if you ask so the question is not replacing this with something else it would have been there in the 50s right but not anymore is the pakistan syndrome no i know i will not succeed but i'll see that you don't succeed correct huh? mm. that is the i think that's why they have friends with pakistan maybe they want to send them more f16s but even in the us no jagid you have now people who have been cancelled they've started a new university called the university of austin yes. so there are these movements even within the us where people are collecting and saying let's form another institution now but that takes courage i don't know if indians will say let's just forget about this whole system let's not let's unplug from this system the pushback to your earlier question which is he's answering about the media power and all that the pushback in america against this wokeism media wow. is much more powerful than from india mm-hmm. so it's like we bought into this more but there are americans who are standing up against it right. there are a lot of americans who are creating their own alternatives to this i i'm surprised that there is no alternative to this in india i mean there are a lot of rich people they could have created their own platforms there are some rinky dinky little platform they're not that serious yeah. but in the united states there are a lot of big money going in into those who've been cancelled being funded and coming together and building an alternative and fighting back yeah the other thing is we thought when uh, private universities like ashoka and kriya come up we thought we'll have an alternative to the destructive tendencies of jnu's left but we found that they are heading in the same direction you know how did this happen i mean Actually, the people was. funding it are uh, not woke by any stretch of imagination in their personal lives in their own yeah. capitalism they made their money yeah. not through work yeah. they made their money as good old capitalists yes. so are they is this hush money i'm i'm asking you wondering a question yeah. is it that the indian ultra wealthy people are funding this uh, leftist progressive marxist driven ideology because it's some kind of hush money mean i'll fund you you keep leave me alone i don't think because my whole point is i think many of them are even not you know aware of what is being taught or what is being they don't do due diligence or something somebody who is but they uh, wouldn't do that when they are taking over a new business but when they want to run a that they won't do there they want return here somebody who is well known or somebody something he comes and ask you know we are starting and it's okay i'll tell you a anecdote believe me quite some time some years before i was uh, traveling to delhi coincidentally or otherwise one of the owners of one of the major uh, newspaper bronze was sitting there i think his private aircraft was not working or whatever it is anyhow <laughs> he was sitting there and uh, he was looking at you know they in those days they used to give newspapers and other i was reading it i uh, casually asked him we got introduced and he told professor what are you doing another okay i asked him what type of things they write in this he had a hearty laugh he says you read all these things he asked me i told him that is what is uh, well, we you know for just to publish some of these things we don't we sell biscuits we sell chocolate like that we sell this also why do you read all these things any of professor things you asked You see, this is a simple. He told me this skin and spin business. We show as much skin as possible to sell, particularly women, mm-hmm. and uh, spin. We spin on some of these uh, stories, and that's all. There is nothing. <laughs> Listen, even though he is a owner of that empire and other thing, he doesn't. You know, same thing is happening. Many of them, for instance, I know one of the uh, rich industrialists personally. who gave some who has given some funds to ashoka i asked him he told is it for they doing those things he asked me frankly i told yes why are you financing them 
you are one of the you know person i know and so let me ask you this since this book is an audit we are auditors just like the higher ernst and young or deloitte or somebody to do financial audit to tell them what's going wrong and they pay them for it yeah. we without getting paid or anything we've done an audit about their philanthropy <laughs> philanthropy we are doing a civilizational audit on their philanthropy don't you think they should thank us no after my discussion with him another thing he is not any more funding whatever he has funded he so, cannot get so don't back. so don't you think yeah. that means but don't you think that means that the the industrialists who are funding or who are thinking of funding should bring us in listen to us and they should take action i mean in a sense we are doing an audit free of charge see they are not doing any great uh, due diligence or anything yeah. some of the smaller businesses i find you know they at least go by the network and you know that uh, you know these are connected with this 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 organization these are you know rss oriented these are this oriented vidya bharati oriented then they provide the funds they may not do a great due diligence but at least some of these i am talking about uh, middle and uh, small level people and other thing but uh, big businesses they just you know and as i always say for very big business in this matter the right hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing <laughs> actually uh, coming from the media business i can tell you one some anecdotes like this you know i was working with the newspaper okay so suddenly the proprietor came down and says look this fellow is running a scam why don't you guys investigate and do it but then i told him i said look we have been careful about doing it because we thought he was uh, so it could be one of your advertisers and also we are doing moderate stories but we are not going all out to go and catch hold of him he said no no do that then i found later that after two three stories were done which uh, of course he was definitely a scam half a scamster huh? but we wrote about it we since it was a lot to write about then he suddenly came back and said now i think it's fine he started giving us more ads now you can go easier <laughs> this is how the system works Correct. especially in the regional media and a little bit in the english media so it's some kind of extortion 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 which says that look in a subtle way uh, we are into this social justice and your factories and your things have got a lot of social justice problems but why don't you fund us yeah why don't you fund us through harvard and they'll be, give us funding and all that and you'll be considered a good guy uh, you are funding social justice programs and so you know we we think that such a person should get a good esg rating and we don't need we leave you alone i there may be a subtle element of that could be subtle element yes and also the advantage you get is like not only does he go easy on you he may go and attack your competitor so which also helps you yeah yeah so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah why not why so it's a good point so sooner or later somebody or the other gets into this okay last two things um, it always surprised me why people uh, i mean just taking off from the business side of things where he said i mean these business people are not woke by any stretch of imagination in their private lives huh? they do their daily puja they have their this thing they go and even have goshalas on the side this all kinds of things right on the other hand they are funding people to say okay you must eat uh, beef and this and that who say oh, are they, this is uh, right to eat beef must be central to this thing otherwise it's an atrocity on some minorities or something like that you know the same fellow who privately is behaving in a different way huh, is actually publicly funding something that he completely does not actually believe in why how do you express this explain this schizophrenia i think um, with the new esg mov- movement that rajiv ji exp- you know briefly talked about so uh, a company now has a fiduciary responsibility not just to make profits uh, as it should be but they also should consider uh, environmental issues social justice and governance and this is coming from the west now companies are becoming the policemen they becoming the judges and the policemen and the funders of all these things which is actually a government function who is the gov- company to say what is environmental loss so tomorrow if you do a home hum it might be considered carbon emitting mm-hmm. right and uh, and then if you uh, you should have x number of dalits and this and that on your board and and it and giving it sort of a token thing now and that's sort of insulting to the dalit it's of yeah. truly empowering somebody right you're sort of giving token positions but that's a, that apart and then the, the biggest part is social justice and 
and this is very very dangerous because you're bringing in all this wokeism into the corporate world so we feature godrej you know this whole lbgtq thing and we all are we support equal rights and respect for for all communities right but now you know the, the godrej culture lab is a proponent of all kinds of western woke uh, alphabet soup of lbgtq stuff and they're bringing in all these ideas and and in, in, within that they will insert kashmir separatism all of that in, inside these things so there is clearly the corporates are stepping out of their bounds of just doing business now you're asking why are they doing this no you need an esg rating and now your stock price everything is going to be you know based on your esg score which is a rubric based on wokeism now if you don't follow those practices your esg rating is down now you can say okay even as a private company in fact umidyar and rockefeller foundation have started this non-profit to help private companies comply with ESG. And so you can say, I'm a private company, I don't care. Now, tomorrow you want insurance. They will look at your ESG and they say, you're not rated. Uh, we can't give you insurance as a business. Tomorrow you want logistics, something that you, you produce, you has to be transported. Amazon can tell you, oh, sorry, I don't want to, we don't want to sell you on Amazon platform. They can cancel you. So this cancellation is everywhere. So you have to be ESG compliant. And the corporates and people like Ernst and Young and all these people are making money out of it because they get, you know, they get to audit you for ESG compliance. So it's a merry making. Everybody makes money. The corporates, you know, comply. It's hush money to, you know, they use wokeism to sort of say, leave us alone. We will be ESG compliant. And then the people who lose are the monkeys in the middle, like the middle class, you know, who will. Let. So essentially, corporates are entering the business of governance, exactly. setting their own policy goals, social goals. And actually doing everything except do the main thing that they're supposed to do, right. which is to produce goods of a good quality, which somebody wants to buy. Yeah, and, and of course, uh, make sure that the shareholder is also taken care of. So their idea now is that they should run the country, they should run society. That's why you see the word like, you know, stakeholder capitalism. Yeah, and that is what oligarchy is. Oligarchy is not just Russian oligarchs, but now you're going to see American Indian oligarchs who are ultra wealthy people kind of indirectly behind the scenes pulling the strings of government, yes. making policies uh, through all these think tanks and all that. And then the government just puts it through uh, because these guys have so much funding power. Yeah. I mean, as you mentioned in your book, that some of these big multinational corporations actually are larger than at least 100 countries in the world yes. in terms of their uh, market capitalization or even sales turnover. Right. So they are as good as states right. within a state, right. or if not the state rather than the state. Right. So but Jaggi, the other important point is right through this ESG, there is religion coming. Corporate place is going to become a place for evangelism because there are there there are organizations, religious freedom foundation, things like that that comes out of WEF, which are essentially they come up they have a ready index, religious uh, diversity and equity index. So if you so they want everybody in a company to have a right to express their religious uh, identity. Correct. So you, the corporations have to provide that space. So who loses out? You tell me. If I'm a a Christian or a Muslim, I, I I go proselytize, and the company has to provide a space for it. So only one religion has to be dismantled and not exactly. included in this. Exactly. Huh? Well, what a wonderful thing! I think we have a lot of work to do, both as a country and a society. And I hope we read this book carefully and see what we need to do, rather than just read it and put it away. Sure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Namaste. Thank, thank you, you so very much, much for your time. Thank, thank you, everybody. Namaste. Namaste. Great, great talk. Great talk. Yeah, thank you.